This podcast is Challenging Opinions and is presented by William Campbell. Thank you for downloading the Challenging Opinions podcast for May 17th, 2017. Every Monday, I'm bringing you brand new content, but for the past while on Wednesdays and Fridays, I've been including previous interviews in this feed. That ends this week, but you still get to hear this interview with Ben Orlin. He's the writer of the Maths with Bad Drawings blog. Enjoy the interview. Challenging Opinions is the podcast where ideas are tested. Whether you are left or right, conservative or progressive, devout or skeptic, what matters is the strength of your argument, not the strength of your voice. On a Skype line, I have Ben Orlin. He's the writer of the mathwithbaddrawings.com website. He's also a math teacher. He's worked in the US and in Great Britain. Uh, Ben, you said that you're both a good and a bad teacher in one of your blog posts. Can you explain what that means? Yeah, so I think this probably applies to all teachers and probably to some extent to all all workers in any profession. Um, But in particular, I think teaching is a weird job just because the goals are so varied. So in teaching, you've got the in the goals of getting the getting through the day's lesson, getting the sort of specific content done. Um, you've also got the longer term goals that are a little fuzzier about what you'd like to encourage the students to do as learners, how they'd like to grow and and getting them to um, to think at a higher level and getting them to be curious and getting them to be energetic about about intellectual problems. Um, so so if you were so, to say which, yeah. which bits you were good at and which bits you were bad at, which is which? Yeah, I wish it were consistent. I wish I wish I could tell you that uh that I was consistently good at either of them, but I think on any given day, even even from lesson to lesson, um, you know, it, you're sort of swinging at a lot of a lot of balls that are flying by, and you hit some and you miss some, and most of them you sort of foul off. And do you think that your performance is typical of math teachers, or are you your blog? I think is a little bit inspirational to say the least. Uh, how would you say you're different from the typical math teacher? Yeah, I think I would say in a lot of ways I'm a pretty typical math teacher. I think I um. In particular, I think part of what math teachers face is this dichotomy. And to some extent, it's a, it's a false dichotomy. We pretend that these are more polar than they are. Um, but there's, we have this vision of traditional math teaching, which is very by the book. It's, you know, the students walk in, you say, open your book to page 42 and work on exercise number one. And it's very rote, very skill driven, um, very much about basic competency. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have this, this other vision at the opposite pole of math teaching, which is, uh, which is inspirational and which is much um, uh, a little less concrete and you're sort of working with ideas. Maybe you're doing more hands-on stuff and it's more uh, – maybe the work is a little more qualitative and it's much more creative and uh, in- independent. Um, and so we, we sort of have these caricatures of these two opposites in math education. Um, and I think I'm probably a typical math teacher in that I, I do a lot of both when it comes down to it. Um, and, you know, any given week is trying to find the right balance for the students. I was talking to Rashawn Biddle of the Dropout Nation blog a couple of episodes ago. He is a very strong supporter of what he calls the accountability movement of uh, holding math teachers and all other teachers to account by testing uh, students when they come in and when they go out of each academic year. What's your thought on that? 
Yeah, I'd say I'm really ambivalent about the accountability movement. Um, you know, before uh, before 2000 or so, so before No Child Left Behind was passed in the United States, um, at least in the U.S., you you had very little window into what was going on in most classrooms. You know, the teacher taught sort of what they wanted to teach. They gave a grade to the student at the end of the year, and it was there really wasn't much of a window. Um, into what was happening in most classrooms. And so No Child Left Behind, you know, introduced, basically made standardized testing central in American education. Mm -hmm. Um, And that really changed the landscape. So it gave us a window into a lot of classrooms and gave us a lot of really useful data. Um, But of course, you know, it's not a perfect window. And so, you know, the, the data we have is only as good as the tests. And depending what state you're talking about, you know, some of those tests were were pretty strong. Some of them were good tests. Some of them really weren't very good tests. Um, you know, and when I was teaching in California, um, you know, even tests that my students went on, went to, you know, did, did fairly well on. Um, I would look at the test and I wouldn't feel satisfied with it at all because it just I didn't think the questions were were honoring the, the subject matter at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not just a question sometimes of, of too easy or too hard. It's a question of just not asking the right type of not not going for the right type of thinking, I think. And if you were to say a bad test to get some information or no test and have no information, which would you go with? Yeah, I think definitely if, if it were purely uh, just an information gathering event, mm-hmm. then I would say, sure, you know, you know, uh, sort of noisy data is better than no data. Um, but of course, it's not just gathering information. It also creates this whole incentive scheme for teachers. Um, and of course, schools are labeled on the basis of these tests. And uh, teachers in some districts, you know, this is very slow and rolling out. And, and I think those in the accountability movement are more in favor of this than than probably is happening in most districts. But there's also the thought of having teachers be be assessed on the on the basis of these tests. Um, and so, you know, it all, it all comes down to how good are the, are the tests. And when it's, when it's sort of admittedly noisy data that, you know, we know is giving us only a very partial image of mm-hmm. what happens in the classroom, um, I guess that, that's where ambivalent comes from for me. You know, I, th- I think as collecting data, great, you know, it's always good to gather to get a better picture. Um, but when that starts being used as a bludgeon or as a, as a, as a carrot or as a stick mm-hmm. to try to get teachers to behave differently, that's when it starts to make me anxious. For the teachers' unions who opposed uh, this type of accountability movement outright, do you yeah. feel that there's maybe they're representing the interests of teachers who weren't quite up to the mark or maybe who were burnt out a bit? Yeah, so I think that's – yeah, I, I think I have very complicated feelings about teachers' unions too. I um, Yeah, I haven't actually belonged to a teachers' union, so I taught at a charter school in California and now here in um, – here in England, where actually I, I could belong to a union, but I'm here for a, a temporary uh, stay, so I haven't joined a union yet. Um, but so, so I have, I'm teaching at a private school, so I, have, I don't I have, don't belong to a union. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so yeah, so I don't I'm not uh, I don't have a lot of firsthand experience with teachers' unions. Um, but my my feeling is that they're probably uh, made to be much more of the demon than they really are. I don't think um, yeah I don't think teachers' unions are certainly not the problem in education. I don't, I don't really think they're a problem in education. I think they, you know, they tend to protect the rights of their workers. Um, when it comes to the opposition to, uh, to accountability, you know, in quotation marks, mm-hmm. um, I think probably to some extent that does have the effect of protecting, protecting the jobs of, of teachers who aren't performing well. Um, but I think it also has the effect of, you know, keeping the job what it is for the other 95% of teachers. Um, mm-hmm. That if you know if accountability were brought in as a way to weed out those, you know maybe the five percent of lowest performers, which is sort of the way it's presented, um, you're also talking about 
changing the nature of the job for everyone mm -hmm. um, and changing the nature of the way the job is talked about and the way it's measured and the way, you know, the way that you see your career. I know uh, that, as you say, you're teaching in the UK at the moment. Mm -hmm. um, very often people who are ad advocating any type of education reform in the United States will compare American education to some other country. You've actually sure. got the experience. Um, what would you say that the UK, if what if anything, would you say that the UK could learn from the US and vice versa? Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, the, I think the contrast is really vivid between the US and the UK in a way that might surprise teachers on both sides, I think, mm -hmm. um, which is to say the, the English system in particular is, is much more standardized than the American system. Mm -hmm. um, so when you tell a British person how, um, how local and how decentralized the American system is, they almost can't believe it. So you explain that, you know, most classes that you take in high school are sort of just offered by the by the school and that they'll vary from school to school. And there's no equivalent of A levels where everyone I mean, there is there's APs, but but those aren't nearly as uh, as pervasive as A levels. A, a levels, we should say, are um, exams that every student pretty much sits at the end of their high school. And that functions as a university entrance exam as well. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it's an exam and it's also a course. So in uh, in the British system, your second, your last two years of uh, of secondary education, you know, what junior and senior year in the United States, um, you're only taking four classes or maybe three classes by the time you're a senior. Mm -hmm. They're two year courses and they follow a very standard curriculum. Um, and these are your A levels. And usually you'll pick three of them by the time you're a senior. You sit those three tests and then you're admitted to universities on the basis of your performance on those tests. Mm -hmm. um, and that's it. Teachers don't even give grades. So, you know, teachers may give marks that are sent home and parents see, but they sort of leave no permanent trace on a transcript. Whereas in the United States, the single most important thing when it comes to universities is the marks you get from your teachers. So, you know, when I was teaching in California, the grades that I gave my students really mattered. You know, how they performed on my tests, the tests that I wrote and that I graded really made a difference in their lives. It really was important for them. And in the UK, that's just not true. The tests that matter are all standardized and centralized. And we should say that the grading is done by anonymously by teachers in a different school who don't know whose papers they're grading. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, they're, they're done by teams of teachers who are, yeah, who are doing it in a, in a very standardized system. What do you say to people in the United States who are promoting the common core? Uh, isn't that very similar to what's happening in the UK? Yeah, that's a good question. So it's... Um... Uh, yeah, I, I can't pretend to be an expert on the Common Core because I actually haven't taught under the Common Core curriculum yet. Um, I think it's moving a little bit towards the the kind of centralization that the UK has, you know, having one curriculum for math and English for the entire country. Um, but it, it's a little different in that these the Common Core tests are not actually really used to assess the students. Mm -hmm. um, they're really meant to give, you know, a window into the classroom and into how the teachers and the schools are performing. Um, and so Common Core is, yeah, whereas, whereas in, in the UK – the tests that are given are first and foremost for the students. They're used to assess the students, and then also they're used to assess the performance of the schools and the teachers. Okay, so number one thing that um, schools in the United States could learn from the UK, what's the, the number one thing that jumps out at you? <sighs> yeah, I, w I wish I had a cogent, uh, a cogent single point. I think that for, for both of them, I think what I find really remarkable is that the systems seem really different on their face, and yet I think the outcomes are quite similar. I think if you look at um, if you look at international comparisons, if you look at the kind of outcomes that happen, you know, I don't think there's a huge difference between 
between the British system and the American system. Um, mm-hmm. So, so as much as anything, I think maybe it's a it's a lesson in humility as to how much these educational policy differences really make. Because when it comes down to it, you know, some of the facts that are the same between um, between England and America, you know, they have uh, pretty similarly structured economies. Uh, teaching is compensated at a pretty similar rate. Um, you know, holds a pretty similar level of prestige in the society. And mm-hmm. so, you know, you sort of have similar people going into teaching. Um, and so ultimately, I think the, the outcomes wind up being pretty similar, even though the systems are radically different. Um, one thing that struck me when I was reading your blog was that you come across as very honest and you talk about your failings and you talk about your failures as well. And that's not something that we get a lot of with uh, teachers. Do you think sometimes, um, I'm thinking particularly in the United States, but it could happen in other countries as well, that the popular discourse of uh, blaming teachers for all of the failings of the education system, do you think that can sometimes make teachers defensive and uh, make them reluctant to admit to any faults and thereby reluctant to improve? Yeah, I think I think that's certainly the case. I think um, I think teachers probably feel quite on the defensive when it comes to American politics right now, that there's a lot of, uh, of scrutiny placed on teaching and there is a sense that somehow First of all, that there are these really severe problems in American education, which I, I don't think is quite as unambiguous as it seems, but that not only are there really severe problems, but that ultimately it comes down to the poor performance of the teachers, um, which is, you know, a really harsh message. I mean, I'm not, yeah, not to judge the, the truth of that either way, but obviously that's a, that's a very sharp criticism to make of teachers. Mm-hmm. And so, and so I think it's pretty natural that, yeah, teachers tend to go on the defensive and it's hard to, to, yeah, to sort of open up in public about, you know, these are the things I think I do well as a teacher. These are the things I, I don't do as well. Um, you tend to want to be a little bit more of, of cheerleading for the profession. And one last thing, uh, Ben, your blog yeah. is called mathwithbaddrawings.com. Who does yeah. the bad drawings? Oh, I do. I do the bad drawings. I don't think you could find someone else to do drawings uh, quite quite as authentically bad as the ones I make. Are you sure it's not like a four-year-old that you have hidden somewhere? <laughs> no, really. I just my, my artistry just hasn't improved. I mean, that, actually, the sad thing is it has improved since the start of the blog. If you sort of scroll all the way down the feed and you look at the beginning, it's it's really um, it's incredible how it could have come so far, my art, and still be so dismal. Ben Orland, the uh, author of MathWithBadDrawings.com. Thank you for talking to me. Yeah, thanks a lot, William. Make your view heard. Email podcast at challengingopinions.com to set out your ideas and defend them on the next podcast. That's all for the Challenging Opinions podcast published on May 17th, 2017. Do you know someone I should interview? What topics should I be covering? I'd be really interested to hear your feedback. And if you like the podcast, there's one thing that you could do that would really help other people to find it. Go on iTunes and give the podcast a rating or write a short review. There's a link on the website directly to the iTunes page. Also, please like the show on Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow the show at Challenging O and follow Ben Orlin at Ben Orlin. And most importantly, subscribe to the show. It's free. You can use iTunes if you're an Apple person or Google Play Music if you're on Android. There's links for both of those and for the RSS feed if you use that. And I know not everybody uses a podcast player. A lot of people just listen on the website. So I have a new way to follow the show. You can enter your email address and get a simple email with a link to listen each time a new show goes online. Zero spam, I promise. You can find them all or get in touch with me at www.challengingopinions.com. 
Coming on Friday, that's May 19th, I'll have the last Encore interview. It's with the journalist and author Christopher Snowden. The Changing Opinions podcast is produced and presented by me, William Campbell. Thank you for listening.